Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the realities of separation abuse. But before we jump into that content today, I want to remind you about PeaceWorks University. You know, every week I I talk to you briefly about the benefits of PeaceWorks University, and I think it's well worth it for you to consider making that your next step. If you enjoy the content that you're hearing here on the PeaceWorks podcast, if you're benefiting from our conversations week after week, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site for people helpers who want to apply gospel-centered solutions to the problem of domestic abuse. You can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. Now let's jump into today's conversation. So we've got some questions recently coming in at PeaceWorks uh, regarding separation abuse. And that term is uh, one that we probably should unpack, like everything in our work, uh, sometimes a term gets placed in front of the word abuse and it uh, can carry some kind of stigma or misunderstanding or be seen as a completely different animal. Here's what I mean by that. We use terminology like psychological abuse or emotional abuse or mental abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse, all as descriptors. And so anytime you hear a descriptor placed before the word abuse, don't consider it a separate, standalone um, entity. Consider it part of the larger construct of abuse. Abuse is really about the use of power to coerce or control another. In our world of domestic abuse or intimate partner abuse, it's the idea of using one's power, position, privilege to control, coerce, demean, or destroy one's partner. And so any precursor to that, descriptor of that, is really just an attempt to qualify the experience of the individual being abused, being harmed. And so the idea of physical abuse then would connote that power and control is taking the shape of physical force, whereas emotional abuse maybe taking the form of guilt tripping or manipulation or intimidation and so on. So when we use the term separation abuse, what we're talking about is the use of power and control to coerce um, and control and demean and destroy after the couple has been separated. And this can take place in any number of scenarios or circumstances. So when we talk about separation, it could be just that. It could be a period of time in which the couple is separated for the sake of safety and security. Uh, it could be court ordered. It could be um, determined by the victim. It could be established by ecclesiological, like church authority, which happens sometimes. And so it, it could be that. It could be post divorce, which is among the more common, especially if there are children involved, as Um, a separation or a divorce does not remove you 
from the presence of your abuser if you have children together, because as my friend often puts it in uh, some of our classes, you remain business partners, you know, for the length of, of the time necessary to raise children. And so uh, the, the children will necessarily, rightfully so, keep you connected to that individual, which also raises the risks and the temptation to continue to practice power and control. So when we say separation abuse, that's what we're talking about. The, the use of power, control, coercion, demeaning, destruction during a period of separation, whether that is established as a temporary consequence or whether it's a long-term reality through the realities of divorce. And so how does that take place? Well, let's talk to some, some for, for helper purposes, for individuals who want to be a helper, you know, what does that look like? Well, some of the more um, simple and direct ways in which abusers in particular continue to practice power and control post-separation are, are things like continued unwanted contact. So let's say, let's use a court-ordered scenario because those are kind of the, the cleaner ones, but let's say that the court orders a no contact, like they give a no contact order one of the most common ways in which abusers break those orders, which puts them in threat of criminal prosecution, but one of the ways in which they break those orders is by continuing contact through text messages, through letters, through phone calls, or even by you know showing up at the residence. Of course, if it's not reported, right, then they may continue or be emboldened to continue that practice. Now, this happens, too, in non-court-ordered separation cases as well. Think about a well-meaning uh, church who's attempting to help a victim escape, and they set up a safe place for her to go, and separation guidelines um, and consequences on the abuser. And yet he continues to send text messages or letters, and, and granted, most of this abuse is not in the form of overt threats. At this point, especially during a separation, it's much more common for that power and control and coercion to be in the form of kindness or niceness or um, the ooey-gooey, you know, sugary, sweet type of approaches, the manipulation, uh, attempting to convince one's partner that you've changed, that there's been a miracle, that you've seen the light and or to play on the passionate romantic emotional side of things and the desperation of being alone and and those type of of things the other thing that happens some in church-based settings is then using uh, church members church leaders elders contacts uh, to apply pressure or leverage on the victim as well and so really it's any it's at this point, separation abuse could be in its most basic form, any attempt to leverage um, premature reconciliation or reconciliation without repentance and forgiveness. That's one example. Another is um, rather than pursuing reconciliation, maybe continued revenge or continued punishment uh, through the use of uh, welfare child protective services, um, threats through family or friends, 
not maintaining custody agreements, like intentionally being late uh, for custody exchanges, intentionally um, neglecting certain aspects of the custody agreement, dragging your feet, not providing the court-ordered or required uh, financial support. Those type of things could also be occurring within the, the, the confines or the time frame of separation abuse. Probably the largest party at risk or party in which is used as tools um, in the hands of abusers during uh, moments of separation are the children. If you share children together, then of course there's a tie, there's a connection that's maintained and children are often used by an abusive partner to relay messages, to undermine the authority of their partner and so on. And so these types of realities are genuine. They are um, occurring throughout the separation process. They're very common when separation occurs. And as helpers, some things I think that we need to realize if we're attempting to help provide for safety and sanity of victims is just because we've instituted a safety plan or just because we provided a safe place for separation doesn't mean that the separation is safe. In fact, uh, among the most dangerous times, and what I mean by danger is among the most um, escalatory times, right? It's always dangerous to be in the presence of an abuser, but uh, among the more risk-filled times as far as uh, escalation go, uh, is during attempts to leave or sustained separation. And so when a victim makes the decision to leave, it tends to trigger escalation. And that's one of the reasons why I like having court-ordered or civil approaches to separation if possible. Things like legal separation or uh, emergency orders of protection or DVPOs or whatever your state has um, so that there is at least a barrier or a consequence to breaking that barrier. One of the things that we've seen in uh, church-oriented approaches over the years are um, negotiations that continue to take place. Rather than establishing strict guidelines at the beginning and then following those guidelines, churches who really want reconciliation, well-meaning, they, they want to see change in this, and shifts in behavior and repentance and all of those great things, uh, will sometimes be convinced by one or both parties to renegotiate the terms of the separation or provide a, a little bit more access to one's partner. Now, of course, that's not limited to the church. It's not as if the church is the worst offender. I mean, when it comes to the idea of custody, um, visitation, um, separation abuse that uses the children, the, the courts are obviously the um, the biggest issue here. I mean, the courts do a relatively poor job in this area. I don't mean to throw all courts under the bus, but let's face it, the reality is that domestic abusers tend to get um, shared custody or 50-50 custody. There tends to be continued abuse throughout the custody process, assuming there hasn't been a proper intervention that has helped the abuser recognize their problem because most of the time, uh, child custody is handled more um, from the perspective of a divorce or um, equality, right, rather than 
the idea of one person using power over the other. So, I mean, it's, it is a church problem, but it's also a societal problem. I mean, we're all struggling in this area. Uh, one of the biggest hindrances uh, to resolution here, I mean, one of the things that causes separation abuse to be sustained is unrepentance. I mean, that's obviously the big one because who's doing the abusing? Well, it's the abuser. So if the abuser is the one continuing uh, to use distance and the tools of that distance to manipulate harm uh, or cause fear in the life of the victim, uh, then he becomes the biggest player. And his lack of repentance or recognition will allow the abuse to continue. And I wish I could say there was like you know, real clear cut, here's the best thing you can do for that. But the reality is, especially if you have children, right? This is kind of a ongoing series of um, choices, the, the idea of the undesirable choices. So as a victim, for instance, you might be helping a victim process all of the less than desirable choices. Like what is the, what, in what ways can we mitigate, right? Your fears, the threat, the harm, without being able to eliminate because he is going to continue to have access to you at least through the kids or shared assets or some other way in which the <clears throat> excuse me the abuse can continue now granted if there can be a clean break uh, which is what often uh, you'll hear activists and, and certain advocates rep, um, recommend as if there's always a clean break as if uh, a victim can always just separate from their abuser and go on their merry way. and Somehow that solves the problem. I, mean, I want to really put a, a, a pin in that, kind of highlight that for people helpers. I think, you know, that's great when it happens every once in a while. You come across a case where there's no shared assets, no shared responsibility. There are no children and the victim can make a clean break, get a clean start, get some help. Um, and that you have to pay no attention to the abuser, right? And I think a lot of activists and certain advocates want to see that happen. I think it's naive, though, because if we want to see real change affected on people, we have to address the heart of abuse because those are rare cases. It's just, it's just rare that you can have a clean break. That's why separation abuse continues, why abuse during the separation continues, because there's something that keeps us connected, whether it be assets or children or family or friends or church or common, you know, neighborhood or, or, or things like that, right? Or extended family. And the reality is uh, that's where most people live, right? And so it's not simply a matter of, well, you know, abusers going to abuse, just get them out. No, we can't do that. We have to, again, mitigate the um, the damage, knowing that we can't eliminate the potential, and understanding that I think is a huge step in helping victims, you know, move forward. Understanding that, that abuser is in many ways going to continue to be present. Now, can we do things to address the abuse? Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, our strategies, our policies, um, we can't unless we are an elected official. Uh, an attorney or a lawmaker uh, really see the changes that we think are necessary when it comes to the court system. So the courts are going to continue 
to really focus on things like 50-50. They're going to focus on shared custody. They're not going to, they often don't, I shouldn't say not, there are some courts I guess that do, but they often do not see domestic abuse as a threat to the children. And so they often give domestic abusers access to the kids. Uh, I don't think, you know, and that may be true that the children are not direct targets of the abuse. However, they are victims of the abuse because they will often be tools in the hands of an abuser or the abuser's heart will still be to target mom and to harm mom and even use the children to do so. But when it comes to the life of the church and people helpers like ourselves and intervening on behalf of people, I do think we have to take seriously our role in confronting and addressing uh, the abuser, uh, having clear consequences and not deviating from those consequences. In fact, one of the things that really has harmed the reputation of the church is the church's uh, willingness or eagerness to uh, placate the abuser, to give the abuser some, some hope in the wrong places, hope towards reconciliation, hope towards uh, mutuality, hope towards access. And I think the church could do a better job in restricting the access and um, the accessibility of the victim to the abuser. For instance, if you're, you know, if you're a church leader, and I think that's a big thing, something that I've seen is that church leaders, you know, trying to um, have both, right? Like, have the cake and eat it too sort of thing. We want to care for the victim and we want she and her children to be safe in our local church, but we also want to minister to the abuser at the same time. And it's really, really difficult. So let's assume uh, you pastor a church like I do where, you know, you have less than 100 people and you have one service and that's your primary means of discipleship is the in-service, you know, preaching of the word, ministry of the word. And you expect both parties to be there. I think that's not only an unfair expectation, I think it's a dangerous expectation and a uh, clear tool, like a very available tool in the hands of an abuser to practice what we're talking about, post-separation abuse. Their very presence in the worship service with their victim, uh, even if they're accompanied by a security person, like that doesn't, that doesn't make a hill of beans worth a difference to an abuser, having a security person sitting next to him, that's just another person they can try to collude with, okay? Just take my word for this. Their very presence in the worship service inhibits the victim's ability to connect with God and to community effectively because they know full well they're being watched. And uh, it's, it's not only unhealthy spiritually for both parties, it's incredibly dangerous. But the other thing I have seen churches do in the larger churches is require them to attend different services. It's still not ideal. It works a little better, uh, but it's not ideal uh, because I can't tell you the number of times I've known abusers who will go to the nine o'clock service knowing their partners are coming to the 11 o'clock service and they will um, just happen to be hanging out at the door where she and the children tend to come in. Or they will walk down the hallway, they happen to know that their children will be going down for their class time. And so there's more than just keeping them separate in the worship service. I recommend, if possible, partnering with another local church um, to diversify your discipleship, to really uh, partner with individuals who can help you 
hold people accountable while at the same time caring for those. If if you are the home church, I would recommend that you provide for the, the victim and the children during a separation and that you ask for help from uh, another local congregation to disciple and care uh, for the husband and provide for their spiritual needs, giving them an option, right, for, um, for church. So, I mean, those are just some thoughts about separation abuse. At the end of the day, it will to some degree or another continue as long as the abuser is unrepentant. Um, so just keep that in mind as you continue to help that there is tons of care and love and support that you and I can provide for victims. But at the end of the day, when there's still a continued connectivity to the abuser, then the potential of abuse, you know, having power and control used against you is present and that you may not only, not only need to be a source of care and comfort for the victim, but that you may also need to be a source of protection and subsequently confrontation uh, for the abuser. Thank you again for joining the PeaceWorks podcast. We appreciate you all so much. I would love to get to know you more. So please check us out at chrismoles.org. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast and you know you need to take the next step, then once again, PeaceWorks University is probably your best next step. All right. Thank you again, guys. God bless.